Hello, everybody. It is, let's see, Monday, February 20th, 2017. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. I am the host of this podcast, Luke Thomas, here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, three parts to the podcast. We go over in a big picture what happened over the weekend. We take a look at some things specifically in the second segment, and then we take a look at what's coming up ahead in the third. So, <clears throat> no time to waste. Let's get right to it. Two events over the weekend. Um, one kind of ruined. I guess we'll start there since we'll go sort of in chronological order. Saturday was supposed to be Bellator 172 Fedor versus Mitrium. It was not. It was Bellator 172 Thompson versus Pitbull, I guess. Um, Fedor was supposed to fight Matt Mitrion, of course, in the heavyweight division and didn't because Mitrion had kidney stones. Apparently he was dealing with all week but thought he could just sort of gut through it and nevertheless uh, couldn't. Went to the hospital on Saturday and they had to call the fight off and it turns out Fedor didn't want any replacements, at least not the ones that were offered to him and so went on his own direction there. Um, so, big blow to the card, but it did take place at the SAP Center in San Jose, California. These numbers are going to be based, of course, off the idea that Fedor was fighting. Good attendance, 13,000, or more specifically 12,994. The gate was $1.2 million, basically $1,159,540. So, for Bellator, those are, you know, those are good numbers. Um, but... You know, we'll see what it does on t TV. I don't know how many people were tricked into thinking it would be on and um, and watched. I guess we'll have to see when that comes up. But be that as it may, no Fedor, no Mitrion. So the main event, Patricky Frede, Pitbull, defeating Josh Thompson at 40 seconds into the second round uh, via KO punch. Looked to me like Thompson was doing mostly okay in the first round, really fighting at kickboxing range, going in and out, in and out, staying just outside of Pitbull's boxing range. Really, those Pitbull brothers, they're, they can kickbox, but they're, they're, they're dangerous with their hands. They're not exactly like Donald Cerrone, who can light you up with his hands, but is very dangerous with his kicks. They're not exactly that way. And so Thompson was doing the right thing, I thought, uh, but the one time he threw an outside kick, too close, uh, Friday was able to counter him with overhand right in the first, but he recovered and it was basically all okay. He was doing the more dynamic shots. Even commentator Jimmy Smith was sort of noting Pitbull only throws like these 1-1-2s, 1-2-3s, you know, um, sort of relatively basic combinations. And you could tell the dynamism that Thompson was bringing was doing well. But in the second round, I mean, he did get dropped in the first, so Thompson, or, yeah, excuse me, Pitbull wins the first. Then they go to the second and uh, they had a clash of heads that really hurt Thompson, which was followed just moments later by an uppercut. And folks have asked, you know, to what extent did the headbutt contribute to the loss? And the answer is pretty significantly. But if you look at sort of the way the rules are written, it fouls accidental or intentional um, to the extent you can determine intentionality. I think what they mean is it has to be sort of close succession to the very end. It can't happen have a semi-recovery, and then happen later. Uh, I mean, maybe Thompson will challenge this, but I don't think so. I think there has to be, there can't be gaps between actions. Uh, what they want to see is if he had crumbled to the headbutt in the same way he had crumbled to the uppercut, um, then maybe there would be a case there, but I, I don't know what to say. So, like, it's crazy because certainly that contributed but so did the uppercut too and remember Thompson did get dropped in the first so nice win for Pitbull this is a bit of a disaster for Bellator who I think was really hoping to match up Thompson 
with Michael Chandler for a big fight down the road. They can do the Pitbull fight, but he already just got lit up by Michael Chandler. So they're a bit of a tough spot there at lightweight uh, in terms of finding name contenders for Michael Chandler. Check Congo defeating Ole Thompson, 30-26 and 2-30-25s. I have no problem with the score. Uh, terrible fight. People seem to be very confused. This is not the Czech Congo who fought Pat Berry. This Czech Congo will lay and pray uh, a little bit. He will take you down and he will bang on you. Now, there were points later on in the fight, obviously, it was getting away from Thompson and the ground and pound was a bit too much. Still, this isn't even like by far Thompson, or, uh, excuse me, um, this isn't even by far Congo's best ground and pound performance. Like the one he put on Mustafa Al Turk was absolutely brutal and it closed the show. So, uh, this one was just a really fairly dreadful affair, even if it did get away from Ole Thompson towards the end. Uh, Anatoly Tokov defeating Francisco France at 224 of the second round via TKO punches. Forget about that. At women's flyweight, a division Bellator's really trying to build. Vita Ortega defeated Brooke Mayo or Mayo at 404 of the third round. I thought Brooke was the better striker for most of that contest, but... Uh, Ortega kept finding ways to light up Mayo's left eye with her right. And there was, I was trying to pinpoint, like, what was the reason why it happened? Like, and she wound up getting, Mayo did this giant hematoma over her eye, and it caused him to, Big John McCarthy to pull in the, the ringside physician, who ultimately said, no, this is not going to happen. So they, they ended the fight there, and Mayo was very, uh, no, no, don't stop the fight, don't stop the fight, which I understand, I appreciate that from her, but... You know, they really had to make the right call there, and I think they did. Even if she can see, that's not really necessarily the, the final issue about whether or not vision is fully impaired. But be that as it may, I was trying to go back and see, like, why was she so active with it, and why was it such a, you know, great um, weapon for her? It didn't really matter what was happening. At range, Maya was pretty good about keeping her hands at least shoulder high so she could bring him up if she had to. I mean, I'm not saying her hand placement was amazing there, but what was really bad was she would get into range. She would sometimes jump inside the space of Ortega. She would land, and as she would back out, she would have her hands way down. Sometimes she would jab with it and had a bit of a lazy jab, and she, she was made to pay for it, not so much in one gigantic moment, but this accumulative... Uh, damage, just you saw saw what happened, and so you know I realize uh, Mayo is uh, or Mayo whatever is uh, incredibly tough and want to go on, and I respect that from her. But and she had I think overall the better offense in the aggregate sense. But if you can pinpoint a single weakness, it doesn't matter aggregately who's better. Um, that's a more direct path, quite literally, uh, to a victory for um, uh, Vita Ortega. So good for her. Uh, Mauricio Alonso defeating Josh Koscheck at 442 of the first round. Yeesh. Koscheck just didn't look good. He was loading up on these single strikes. And Alonso wasn't doing anything particularly amazing, but was kind of covering up. And then when Koscheck would leap into range, these big steps he was taking with these huge motions, right? There wasn't much of an economy of motion with him. These giant steps. Uh, Alonso would light him up with three, four, sometimes five strikes. And really got him once, pawed him with the jab, pawed him with the jab, kind of parried, looked like he was going to parry and then come over the top, Frank Mir, Antonio Silva style, and kind of parried just a little bit with the hands and then came straight down the right. Koscheck didn't see it at all. It clearly bothered him. Maybe it affected his vision as well. Uh, that stumbled him. Koscheck went back and then uh, Alonso basically cornered him and closed the show from there. 
Kostya grabbing his face and his eye kind of rolling over. Good stoppage. I think this is, what, six losses in a row now for Josh Koscheck. This is fairly bad. He's 39 years of age. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't won a fight since 2012. His last fight was a split decision win over Mike Pierce at UFC 143. He has since lost to Johnny Hendricks, Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley, Jake Ellenberger, Eric Silva, and now Mauricio Alonso. Mm. Not too good. He's in a bit of trouble. Um, another another problem for Bellator. They wanted Koscheck probably for some kind of fight to promote one of their guys internally, maybe for a daily fight down the road, depending on what happens with him. And now this hurts. So they lost on two big name guys, Thompson and Koscheck, to turn them into something. But um, that's Bellator's cross to bear. Nothing really of note to mention on the prelim card except James Terry, BJC. Uh, Jamas, 30-27 across the board. Uh, I guess it was a technical decision because they had to stop it in the third. So, there you go. Uh, okay, so let's now move to UFC Fight Night 105, UFC Halifax. This took place at the Scotia Bank Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, I don't... Oh, I have a numbers here. Let me pull these attendance numbers out if I certainly can. By the way, the gate was uh, $575,000 U.S. Attendance, 8123 Your fight of the night, Derek Lewis, Travis Brown. And your performances, Tiago Santos and Paul Felder. Okay. <sighs> Main event, Derek Lewis. <clears throat> Main event, Derek Lewis defeating Travis Brown at 312 of the second round via KO punches. Yikes. Lots to say about this one. Let's start with Travis Brown. This is a devastating loss for his career. I was going through this on my post-fight show yesterday. This is easily the worst loss of his career. Almost all of his other losses have come to either UFC... Well, all of them have come to UFC champions, and then he had the one Bigfoot Silva loss, which I think fairly flukish, and even then... Bigfoot Silva's a guy who's beaten Fedor, who was a champion in, I believe, either Elite XC, um, or Super Heavyweight Champion. I can't remember which champion he was. But certainly he's a guy who has worn some gold around his waist and has some pretty big wins under his belt. Obviously, you know, they share a win over Alistair Overeem together. Um, and this is a this is a fairly devastating loss. I don't mean that to demean Derek Lewis in any capacity whatsoever, but he just doesn't have any hardware from a major organization. And that 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 represents a new low for him. Uh, can't I don't know to what extent you can blame on Evans Harverdian. I thought Travis Brown came out and was doing the right things. To be honest, staying outside of boxing range, going all different manner of kicks inside the leg, outside body, teep, head, really sort of giving uh, Derek Lewis something to think about and having, as you saw, a ton of success up the gut with the teeps. That's something he's been pretty good at for a while now, and he was really using it to great effect. How to reach advantage? Why not use it? Have a skill advantage in so far as. Who has more ways to win inside the space? Um, not who has the most devastating win, who has the single greatest power or strength in an abstract way. That would probably belong to Derek Lewis. But who has more sort of a variety of options of things they could do, it's definitely going to be Travis Brown. And, and he said he was going to bring his athleticism to bear. I didn't necessarily see a ton of evidence of that. Uh, but I did see a smart game plan. I thought that they had the right idea. This is not a fight where at the beginning you were like, what is Travis Brown doing? Mm-mm. I thought he was really fighting a smart fight early. But um, 
credit to uh, Derek Lewis, incredible perseverance, incredible perseverance. You know, I mentioned this again last night as well. One of the hallmarks of a great fighter, and even Lewis acknowledged in the post-fight press conference he's a little bit one-dimensional. He knows he has to work on his game, but... You know, guys who can just find ways to win out of bad spots. He's It's not like he's going in there and just running over everybody. You know what? I guess in the Guto in a cinch fight, okay, he ran over him. But guys are getting him to the ground. Guys are taking rounds from him. But he's still finding ways to hang on, not let the fight get too far out of bounds, and stick it to him later, which is exactly what he did. When he had Travis Brown in close range, he made good use of it, rocking him every single time. Anytime they were, excuse me, now my nose is running. Every time they were together like this, um, he never let an opportunity uh, get wasted, even in that first round, doing a lot with it. Now, the number of times Travis Brown hurt him, the number of times you visibly saw Derek Lewis carrying his belly because it was in pain or, you know, in his judgment, he just merely had gastrointestinal problems. But, okay, he got hit up the gut, and it was causing him discomfort. Um, that clearly meant Travis Brown won the first, even if there were a couple of close shaves from the heavy punches of Derek Lewis. But in that second round, and I thought the corner advice, by the way, great corner advice from Derek Lewis's team, telling him, you're staying at kickboxing range, you're going to get torched. You need to back him up, get in tight, and let the hands go. And at first, he didn't do that. And I was like, oh man, Travis is going to walk away with this. But he didn't. And and there's a case to be made in that first round. I mean, look, if you have a guy like Derek Lewis fleeing in exchange because of pain, you know, there's a case to be made. You don't want to let a lot of those opportunities pass up. It's a delicate balancing act between how do I finish a very clear, a demonstrably hurt opponent and at what point is that overreaction and chasing a guy down who's got big power who can hurt me after the fact and it's a tough answer man all I can say is there's a lot of evidence to suggest now that if you don't put Derek Lewis away when you get a chance if you don't really hurt him when you've got a chance if you don't really stick it to him when you've got a chance this is a guy who has a surprising ability to come back later in fights. He can turn the tables on you very quickly, even at advanced stages of a bout. And I think we need to add that to like the skill set. Well, like when we when we talk about Derek Lewis in the future, we have to say like, what are some of his skills? Oh, he's got big power. Blah 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 blah. He also is perseverant. He's a perseverant fighter. You cannot take this guy lightly. If you have if you have him on the ropes. There's a case to be made to stick it to him, um, because if not, he will stick it to you. And so in that second round, again, Brown was coming out. I thought he was doing the right things for the most part. But once Lewis was able to start forcing these exchanges in tight, but particularly against the fence, he just had Brown dead to rights. And that one flurry, I thought Brown was going to go down. Brown turtling, or not turtling, I'm sorry, but you know, guarding up, trying to cover. He did block a lot of the shots. The uppercuts were all kind of getting through, but nevertheless... He was protecting himself at least enough to hang on if he could have created distance, but it's just hard to eat a lot of punches from Derek Lewis and keep going, even if you're a super tough guy like Travis Brown was. Um, so he eventually gets collapsed. They go to the ground. Derek Lewis is on top. There's one point in a scramble where Brown tries to get up and Lewis just kind of across the collar, just kind of he-mans him back down, almost like a rock bottom or something. Um 
And there's the, they eventually get back to his feet and there's another scramble, but he gets dropped for a third time, or he just kind of falls even for a third time. And when he gets back on top, Lewis just closes the show with heavy punches. I mentioned last night on my post-fight show that I thought Mar- Rafael Mario Masaki, um, he's a guy who lives in Brazil, but he's from the D.C. area to an extent. Him and, his, him and his brother opened up a bunch of schools here. I know them. I have a, a high respect for them. I do think Yamasaki's a good referee, but wow, was that a terrible stoppage. Whoa. Um, I know a lot of people believe that Travis Brown is somehow a despicable person, and maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know enough about the facts of the case. I don't think a lot of you do either, but maybe it's true. Maybe all that stuff is true. I'm not here to challenge the, the truth or the falsehood of it. I'm just saying it's irrelevant who goes in there. They're entitled to the highest level of referee protection, especially if it's a main event of a UFC contest, and they he did not get that. I'm sorry. And you may be like, well, Travis Brown, who cares? right? But it's about the next guy. It's not about Travis Brown. It's about what kind of standard of care and safety precautions and effective maneuvers and measures are we meaningfully able to employ across events. That's what it's about. And so I thought it was a terrible stoppage. You do not have to punch a guy into unconsciousness for uh, about to be stopped. We'll talk more about that later as we get down to the prelim card. But, um, you know, great, great job by Derek Lewis and finding a way to let his power affect change. Right? One of the big criticisms I had of Flyweight is their power doesn't ever seem to affect any change. His affects change in about in the blink of an eye, man. In the blink of an eye. And uh, he just finds ways to hang on and let that power come to bear. And then sort of just surfs the chaos uh, from that point on. And uh, it, it, it's, you know, I don't know how far he can take it, but he's taking it pretty damn far. So good for Derek Lewis on that one. Um, if you want to know what I think about the comments he made about Ronda Rousey and the domestic violence stuff, you can check out my post-fight show. Um, Johnny Hendricks defeating Hector Lombard, 30-27 on two scorecards, 29-28 on another. You know, a couple of things about this. Number one, I don't know where his striking uh, power went. A lot of folks blame USADA, so to speak. Uh, Maybe that's it. Again, I don't know what the answer is. There's not enough clear evidence measured here to, to give us a, you know, an easy call. What I will say is, it's not like it, it appears to be gone in some capacity or the other. But what I will say is his wrestling strength, I think, is all there. Dude, he was hanging with Hector Lombard in that clinch. And Lombard is not one of these guys who's like a, who has like a Muay Thai clinch where he's wrapping around the neck and literally hanging on you and pulling on your posture and yanking you side to side. He's a little bit more upright like a judo player. He's kind of waiting for your balance to shift so he can turn it. Right? That makes sense? But he's powerful in that space. He's strong and physical. And Johnny Hendricks was winning a lot of those underhook battles or at least getting the underhook enough for it to matter, um, I thought that um, when he was almost getting tripped, he was he was out. His wizard was beating the underhook of uh, Hector Lombard. Like, dude, his his wrestling is all there, and that has to be some level of comfort for him. Like, whatever he's lost in the last few years, I I, I still think that's a really potent form of his game. And frankly, he was the guy who was doing more of the right things. Um, he had the jab was kind of a flicked out jab where the elbows up and they kind of flick it almost like a Benson Henderson kind of jab, but it was good to bait him because the left hook was finding a home as a consequence as a counter for Johnny Hendricks. Obviously those um, those step in jump knees right, and he was catching Lombard dead to rights with those things. He was just Lombard is just too flat footed. It's easy for guys to game plan around him. And you know was I blown away by Johnny Hendricks in this fight? Certainly not. But I was, one, surprised about the vitality of his wrestling game that's still around. And I think, two, 
you know, did I need to be wowed? It would have been nice. But what I need to see was, can you prepare for a guy? Can you make weight? Can you execute on the game plan? Can you be the more dynamic offensive fighter here? And can you can you just execute a plan? And he did. That's exactly what he did. He didn't just like come up with the idea of those jump knees. Those were those were one thousand percent game plan for. And he recognized them. He had he pulled the trigger on them, um, and held his own in the clinch. Defended takedowns well, or at least you know, he got back to his feet right away. Um, just put more pressure on Lombard, stayed out of trouble early, kind of stuck it to him a little bit later, had good energy later. Solid performance, man. Solid performance. Not a performance you go, oh my God, this guy's amazing. No, you didn't go walk away with that necessarily, but, but you know, not a lot to criticize exactly. Maybe not what it once was from the striking standpoint, but not so bad. Not so bad. Uh, Gavin Tucker defeating Sam Cecilia, 30-27 across the board. Man, Sam Cecilia was just, uh, look, he's a powerful guy, and, and he tries to, to you know bring action to all of his fights, and I respect that about him, but he was just totally outclassed here, man. Gavin Tucker, what a, what a UFC debut for this guy. Um, I mean, changing stances, throwing multiple strike combinations, showing Sam Cecilia so many angles that Cecilia either couldn't throw or was throwing these one-strike you know, attempts that are easy to read, easy to get out of the way of, easy to angle off, easy to counter. And that's exactly what you saw from Gavin Tucker, man. He just was on another level over Sam Cecilia. Poor guy couldn't do a whole lot with it. Um, you know, I would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more lethality from his game. But maybe that's something that will come with time. It was good to see a hometown guy uh, get some love. That's always a nice thing. And when, you know, a fair, simple decision... Um, Easy call, too. Hard to get that one wrong. There was just one guy was just doing things at a much higher level than the other one. You throw one-strike leaping shots, a la Josh Koscheck, and you have someone like Gavin Tucker, they're just going to get out of the way, angle out at the end of combinations. They're going to get you to faint fake. Uh, or actually, they're going to be faking and fainting. They're going to get you to bite on them. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna get a reaction out of it. They're going to react to it. Like It's just a higher level of, of the game, uh, far and away. And... While he wasn't able to put Cecilia away necessarily, you know, there was just a demonstrable difference in class. Elias Theodoro defeating Cesar Ferreira. 130-27, Even Theodoro thought that the 30-27 scorecard was a bit bunk. Some folks were asking about that third round. Why wouldn't um, Ferreira get the nod in the third round for taking the back and having it for 90 seconds, including, you know, one attempt across the chin that did have... Um, Theodoro grimacing, you know, I'm not saying that wins a round, but I can see why some judges might give it a round. Um, I guess they didn't see it as quite enough. They didn't quite have him squirming. The only real defense he had was he pulled on the hand, forcing Fajera to switch to the gable grip, and then he even got it off from there. So it wasn't like a sustained thing where he was really in trouble. He was in pain and in discomfort, and having your back taken is terrible. But if he had held it a little bit longer through different transitions, plus it was the second time he had lost the back like that. So I just think he thought, well, you know what? Or the judges might have thought, you know what? This is a nice attempt, but it wasn't enough. Slow start for the Canadian. And it looked like he just couldn't figure out which offensive direction to go. But eventually just sort of stuck it to him as Fajera. Fajera, man, he looks the part, but he doesn't have a lot of... This game's just not all that dynamic. Um... He has decent backpack, and Theodoro has great backpack defense. Like, escapes anyway. 
Um, but Fajera, man, he just never seems to. He just never seems to round a corner into somebody who can do more things at once. He just seems very limited on on how far he can really push creativity or, um, you know, um, diversity in his in his attacks. And so, I think the guy who was frankly more diverse here was Theodore, at least over time. Frankly, the busier, more f- frequent a- attacker, and it just paid dividends. Um, Sarah McMahon defeating Gina Mazzani via arm triangle at 114 in the first round. We're going to take a look at this in the second segment. Oh, man. Sarah McMahon, so impressive. So impressive. Uh, Paul Felder defeating Alessandro Ricci at 441 in the first round via TKO elbow and punches. I did not know. I'll just be honest. I did not know he had gone to Duke Rufus's. Last time I'd interview him uh, was around the Barbosa fight, and he was with what I call the uh, East Coast Super Friends. That's the Ricardo Almeida team with Frankie and uh, Eddie Alvarez and Barboza and um, you know Marlon Moraes and, and, and some other ones as well. So I thought he was still there. I guess not. Um, he looked good. He looked really good. Um, we'll talk more about this in the second segment as well. Uh, on the prelim card, okay. Santiago Ponzinibbio defeating Nordin Taleb. 29-28 across the board. Fair score for me. Uh, Ponzinibbio... Started strong and finished strong. Had a little trouble in between. Um, I got to say, you know, Taleb lost this fight and it looked like he got his nose broken and just couldn't really recover from that. Or maybe, I forgot. I'll just say this. Taleb's improvement since his Bellator days is remarkable. If you went and saw his fight against Maria Saramskis, you wouldn't even recognize the guy. I mean, physically he looks the same, of course, but the skills were so much less. He is so much more dynamic. This time around, it wasn't enough against Ponzinibbio because Ponzinibbio is a really talented guy. And I think he was taking the bigger risks with his striking. He was setting himself up to throw bigger things. It looked like Taleb was looking to counter, but counter for short, quick strikes. He wasn't looking to counter with something particularly uh, impactful. And so I think the waiting around cost him. I think some of the jabs that Ponzinibbio was able to attack with were just sort of creating this problem up front. And once that was established... Um, he was able to do a, a lot more things. So the fight got away from him in the end. But, you know, uh, and by the way, I don't know if you guys know this. Taleb was one of these guys who in French-Canadian media had spoken out against the UFC about being pretty upset with things. So I'd be curious to see what happens to him after this fight. But uh, Ponzinibbio continues to do great things. I really think he's a great prospect. I, I, I like his ability to adapt and make some some necessary changes for success here. Um, I think he was having some early problems with the range of Taleb. But was able to take over and take command of the fight. Random Marcos defeating Carla Esparza, 28-29, 29-28, 29-28. So she, it was a split decision. I scored it for Esparza, but I won't cry too much. Again, this is one of those fights that where you can, you know, reasonably find a winner either way. And we all know my opinions about judging. I think it's fundamentally broken. So getting too upset about something like this is just not a waste of everyone's time. But it's something to be said. I thought that, you know... Marcos and Esparza have two very different kinds of grappling. Esparza has very meat and potatoes, and I don't mean that as an insult. Like it's conventional, but it's well executed conventionality, right? She's got she when she gets a double, she's really good about turning on an angle. Um, she passes guard well. She she waits to have position before she really tries to set up something impactful, either with ground and pound or submission attempt. She can. She was taking mount correctly. You know, she wasn't trying to jump over like a horse. She was sliding her knee across a la Jacare. And so that was great. Um, she does those things really well. She's just a little bit offensively hesitant sometimes. 
Um, Marcos is the opposite. Marcos' style of grappling I don't think is as good. I would actually call it even gimmickier, gimmickier. But that's not necessarily always a bad thing. In fact, sometimes that can be a real big asset, and I think it was in this fight. Being able to get some of those crucifix positions, I mean, look, against someone like Esparza, you're eventually going to lose that position. She is eventually going to get out and get on top and probably keep you there, if not advance to a position of her own. But if you can keep her there long enough to create some hammer-fisting problems, and then on top of that, you're, you have your own sort of weird ways to set up a scramble, you can do interesting things. And that's exactly what she did. Um, I do think Esparza won that fight, and I do think she has the better game. But I can appreciate what Random Marcos was doing. And she had a very, very different style. And not even really just in the grappling. Even in the striking, she had this sort of, like, unconventional style that, you know, she was, like, weirdly looking over and hunching a little bit. And, you know, you said Esparza kind of just waiting here. It was really a matchup between conventionality and a matchup between unorthodox. In this particular case, unorthodox wins the day. And that can happen sometimes. Um, even if someone is, you know, less technical than the other uh, or takes, you know, more grappling or striking risks. Um, I think Tony Ferguson has mastered that style. Now, we'll see if, you know, Habib Nurmagomedov can make him pay. But Tony's technical and takes risks. Right, so he's got the best of both worlds. Um, but uh, anyway, Random Marcos a big win for her. She was gonna be potentially 500 in MMA if she had lost this fight. So this was a important win for her career. And again, I can understand the scorecard for her completely. Um, oh, and by the way, I know there was some talks about like, oh, you shouldn't take a tune-up fight. First of all, look at what happened with Sarah McMahon. Easy call on a tune-up fight. Number two, there's been a thousand tune-up fights in this uh, world of combat sports that have done, you know. Uh, uh, many amazing things. The Daryl Horcher fight for Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, chief among them. Um, not to mention everything one that's happened in boxing. And she was like, uh, what was her name? Claudia Gadelia was like, oh, real fighters don't take tune-up fights. Yes, they do. Smart fighters take tune-up fights. You know, don't let... One thing that fighters do a lot in MMA is browbeat each other and put peer pressure on each other. And the fans kind of buy into it because it's part of their trash-talking rivalry. And I understand that, but it's just fundamentally not true that real fighters don't do it. Like, how many boxers have done it? Juan Manuel Marquez did it not too long ago. He's not a real fighter. He's a real fighter. Um, Eamon Zahabi defeating Heginaldo Vieira. 30-27, 2-29-28. I would have had it probably more 29-28. I thought it was a little close going into the third. Had a, Zahabi was strong early, dropping him. Zahabi had a lot of success when he was able to get Heginaldo Vieira's back up against the fence. And what happened was the Brazilian's hands would drop and he would get real tall. And Ayman was throwing, or Ayman was throwing these really accurate punches right down the middle, counter-striking, getting out of range, popping back in. He was looking awesome. Kind of took the second round off a little bit. I just thought Vieira was winning off workload alone. But in the third round, Zahabi, man, he was having so much success with, like, with lead uppercuts. And then again, pushing um, uh, Vieira back against the fence. It was weird. It looked like the striking of Eamon Zahabi was like a slow-motion Dominic Cruz. Less hoppy, you know, but he was doing a lot of switching and coming around and throwing and then exiting out at that angle. Some people said it reminded them more of TJ Dillashaw. I can buy that, too. Or maybe like a slower-motion TJ Dillashaw. But nevertheless, Eamon Zahabi's got some skills. You know, I think that he might be at a—he doesn't look like a physical specimen for the weight class, but it's a nice new introduction, and um, the Canadians seem to love him, and— you know, he's got the guy's obviously a, a, a very talented fighter, was really able to get it done. Um, Tiago Santos defeating Jack Marshman, 221 of the of the second round, spinning heel kick and punches. 
Tiago Santos, man, this guy, when he wants to do things, um, he's just hard to trust because his offense can oftentimes be great. But you saw in that first round, he can get tagged. And when he gets tagged, doesn't necessarily have a tremendous chin um, for this level. And is better offensively than he is defensively. So there's like a, there's like a gap there. But in that second round, man, that spinning wheel kick, boom, upside the head of Marshman. Marshman drops. Now, at first, I was like, mm, I wouldn't call that a bad stoppage, but it was a little early. Then I went back and I watched. If you watch what the referee does, and I countered him, I went back and watched like a dozen times. You can verify for yourself. Marshman drops. Boom. Santos gets on top, lands one, two, three. All three are clean. All three go right through. Okay? Now, what you didn't see from Marshman was, ah, he wasn't, his head didn't rock back, okay? I've seen my other guys get dropped and their heads rock back. Like when Travis Brown fell on the ground for that third time before Derek Lewis jumped on him, even when he fell, his head rocked. You know, there was a lack of control of his own sort of motor skills, yeah? Not the case at this one. So that's why I thought it was a little early. However, this is what we talked about in the Derek Lewis fight with Travis Brown. Same thing in this one. When will a referee stop a contest under someone's striking duress? When the person being struck is not showing intelligent defense. And there are markers for that, right? Getting to your feet, maintaining cover, trying to underhook, doing something physically to advance a position or to get out of a bad one, just to do something to affect change, right? So if your initial response is this, and then you just do that, that's not intelligent defense. If your initial response is this, and then... You run away, or you go for a takedown, or you um, get post a hand on a mat and try to stand up. You know, you're doing something. Try to wrap up guard. Try to control arms. Try to, you know, overhook and grab a, a, a collar tie. Then they'll they'll let it go, right? Because you're doing something. Um, you don't have to punch someone into unconsciousness to reach the threshold of a lack of intelligent defense. If you punch someone into unconsciousness, by definition, there's no intelligent defense. They're literally not conscious. But all I'm pointing out is some folks were like, ah, I didn't like the, the stoppage in the Marshman fight. And if, uh, first, I agree with you, but when you go back and you watch, the spinning head kick lands, boom, drops him. Or the spinning wheel kick, drops him. He comes on, Santos does, bang, bang, bang. All three land hard. And Marshman just kind of eats it and doesn't really do a whole lot with his hands. He doesn't really try to grab. He doesn't He doesn't juke out of the way. Nothing. He just kind of takes them. And by the way, when they stopped the fight, he didn't really protest the stoppage too much either. To me, that was a good stoppage. He actually did some mercy for that guy. right? There was a little bit of mercy involved there in addition to the lack of intelligent defense. But just remember, guys are like, oh, he wasn't out. The, you know, next fight, someone's punching someone. He didn't go out. So what? It's not about whether you went out. You don't have to. The rule is not you need to punch someone into unconsciousness to get a fight stopped. It is merely they have to demonstrate a lack of intelligent defense. There's a lot of different ways you can do that, and you can be perfectly conscious for it. Um, and then Gerald Mearshart defeating Ryan Jane's armbar at 131 in the first round. This kid's hips. I mean, sensational. Brian Stan talked about it on the broadcast. I can't say enough good things about it. And here's what's interesting about the arm bar in this particular case. You know it was fast. Um, you know, and Stan talked about the fact that the guy's hand was here and then he waited to spin. Here's another little trick you can look at. When you go back and you watch, there are he's, obviously Mearshart has 
What's his name? Mearshart has two legs. Yeah, right? It's the left leg that does the most of the outside spinning. It's the right leg that stays on the inside, typically on an arm bar. So that means it's going to be on the right arm. Uh, if the left leg is spinning outside, it's the right arm they're attacking. Typically, when you have a spin like that, in an ideal scenario, what you want is the near side leg, in this case, the right leg of Mearshart, it would want to be clamped down on the back of Janus, right? People don't realize that. You actually want to have a, you kind of want to, remember, you, you almost want to be chest to chest. And in fact, you can be chest to chest to get that, to get that arm bar. If the person is upright, it's hard, you can't get the leverage necessary sometimes, in fact, in most cases, to get it. And what's interesting is Mearshart is so quick that he actually doesn't use his inside leg to clamp on the pasture, posture excuse me, of Jane's. The left one just spins so quickly into position and actually like hugged the hips inside that by the time Jane's was sitting back on his heels, it was too late. That is a lightning quick armbar. A lightning quick armbar. Contrast that with the armbar with the slow, steady spin that uh, Valentina Shevchenko had on Juliana Pena. Right, that one was a little bit more labored. Took a little while to get you know longer in a position. Now she had good control and better posture control, so she could spin slower. But I just want to point out, it's not really that he spun fast. He actually wasn't really controlling too much. A little bit he was, partly with with controlling of the arm, but he wasn't controlling too much the posture with his own legs. The hamstrings weren't clamping down on the back of Jane of Jane's, and uh, for. For Mearshart to be that quickly into position without doing that tells you that thing must have been ultra, ultra quick. Great job by him. Um, fighter of the card on this one, you got to give it to Derek Lewis. And then I guess on the Bellator card, I give it to Patricky Freire. Okay, let's take a break here. Let's go and look at just a couple of extra slides on the head and arm triangle of Sarah McMahon and that up elbow from Paul Felder. Let's do that now. Okay, so let's talk about this Paul Felder up elbow. Some people call it a step-in up elbow. I've called it that. Step-in is sort of redundant because you're not supposed to throw it without stepping in. In fact, that's where the power comes from is from the step. Right? If you just sort of uppercut your lead elbow, and you can do this with the lead or the rear elbow, um, not necessarily a ton of power on it, or at least not nearly as much as if you kind of step into it. Think of a jab. If I keep my body straight, I don't step, and I just extend my arm, Maybe I can punch hard, but I know I can punch a lot harder if I drive into it, right? So it's the same kind of thing. So no one calls it a step-in jab unless it's something different than a normal jab where maybe you're stepping in wide or doubling up your steps or something like that. So they just call it a jab. So I just call it an up elbow is, is really the, the best way to think about it. And again, you can do it with the lead here or the rear uppercut. Now, uh, Ricci had been doing a lot of stance switching, but what he'd been doing a lot from orthodox is just jabbing. And jabbing and crossing, but a lot of heavy jabbing. When he was standing southpaw, he was throwing a lot of hooks. He'd throw a right hook just so he could exit out at this angle. He'd throw a left hook, depending on where Felder was, to exit at that angle. But in an orthodox versus orthodox, doing a lot of straight jabbing. Okay, And what I think you're going to see from Felder is, and this has been happening throughout the round, here's what he was trying to do. Watch, this is earlier in the round. This is, not, this is close to the final exchange, but this is not the final exchange. Right? You see him fake, he kind of leads his hand wide a little bit there, and he's going to step. And when he steps, he's going to try and jab. You can see him looking down, a little bit mouth breathing there, right? And when he does, he kind of gets off at an angle, but he doesn't really land. This, you'll see, both guys kind of just miss. 
And so what happens is Felder's like, ah, I missed. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lo- load up on this right and then sort of helicopter over with my left like this, right? You're sort of swinging wild hooks. And then they separate, right? Which brings us now to the final uh, exchange. But here's the key insight. It's not really this one moment before this that defined what happened here. Why would you use a lead uh, up elbow? You would use it because you, you have a guy stepping into you a lot. When he was jabbing, he wasn't just jabbing. He was stepping in either wide from like way into kickboxing range, way into boxing range, and then would maybe throw something behind it. But he was just doing, he was covering a lot of distance at once. And this is something to greet them when they come in like that. Like the other, the sort of the rear elbow, uppercut elbow, um, has some similar functions depending on how you use it. But definitely for this lead one, you're catching somebody coming in because they're covering a lot of distance. You want to be able to close this in on them. That's what that's for. That's really the best way because, yes, you can throw it up. Yes, you can throw it up and step, which is better. But it's better if you can throw it up and you know, you, know, you want to have your tricep parallel to the ground. That's how far it's supposed to go up. If you can throw that step and get them to come into it at the same time, that's really the idea. You're trying to catch them coming in. That's what this is about. And if you notice from this orthodox position, yes, he would jab a lot, and that's also what he's timing this off of. But more so, it's that this guy was covering a lot of distance, as I measured, mentioned before. So let's take a look at the slides here by one by one, then I'm going to put them all together. So watch what happens here. Felder's going to fake a little bit. You can see him. He's going to motion his hips in. Right? Watch the hands here now of Ricci. He brings him up. You see that? Takes a step back as well. Right? So these guys are testing each other out. And what really stands out to me about this is not merely the presence of mind to throw this, recognizing how much distance your opponent is covering in one go, but the way in which he times it. It looks to me, and I could be wrong about this, but it looks to me that he times it the second he sees Ricci moving, he jumps in with this lead up, up elbow. Here's the slides. They lean. Watch. Now, here you see Ricci moving. Look at his eyes, mouth open. You can see he's reaching down to like, his jab comes from the waist almost a little bit here. So what does Felder do? Felder, at last time, tried to meet him with the jab and then get his head off the center line. This time, he just kind of eats it. Watch. The jab actually lands here. But here's what it looks like to me. And here's the elbow cracking. We've talked about jamming before, where you sort of move into someone as they're throwing something so that you can stop it before it ever really gets started. He doesn't quite exactly do that, but what you can see Felder do here is, here comes the jab from the hip. Felder kind of parries it to the side and pushes it into his shoulder almost a little bit here while he drives his elbow up. Look at his tricep parallel to the mat. Boom, gets him stepping in as a consequence. So he timed it, he executes it perfectly, lines it right up the center, and he kind of eats this shot a little bit, but does enough to kind of parry it off to the side. It does land a little bit more than this photo shows. Boom, and you can see that. Look at that, man. That is, that is a, I mean, he just catches him clean. You can see he kind of protects himself here a little bit as well. So he kind of ate it a little bit, kind of jammed it, kind of parried it at the same time. A little risky to do it, but it pays off because the guy goes down. And you can see he, he just sort of falls here after he touches his face. He doesn't, it doesn't, it's not too good for him. Let's take a look at that now uh, in, in sort of slow motion. Watch Felder. He will move right when Ricci moves. Reads it. 
looks at him down, boom, kind of parries it off a little bit, catches him. Just the timing on this, really kind of exceptional. Now let's take a look at Sarah McMahon's arm triangle here, and there's a few things about it I kind of want to point out, but this is really nice. This is what you should notice at first. She's got one arm on the wrist, and then she's got so she's got inside wrist control, and she's got crossed wrist control on the same right arm. I don't know what this tattoo is. Um, okay, so Mazzani tries to stand and tries to hand fight here, but you can see, I mean, you can just imagine, like we're talking about this because McMahon has an insane squeeze. I would imagine she's got some gorilla grip too. And this is going to be hard to break because you got to get your your weight down, hips forward, shoulders back. You got to be able you got to be able to push the integrity of this outward, right? See how her elbows are kind of close to her hips. They come kind of at an L shape. You're not really challenging this grip in any kind of way. And it must be hard because she's probably getting sucked in super hard on this one. So you can see she tries to push it down here and separate the two. This is better, but it's not enough. Again, I don't know what this tattoo is. And then she throws an elbow over the top. And you might be like, why is she throwing an elbow over the top? She's not really fighting the hands. She's not circling the hand inside on top. She's not doing anything. Like she, she's, not, she's not doing all the right things. But, I mean, it's her UFC debut. And Sarah McMahon's got a grip on her. You can, I mean, look at this woman. I mean, you know, there's only so much you can reasonably expect from someone in this circumstance. So here's what McMahon does. She lowers her weight. You're going to watch her pop her hips in. She's going to lift and drive Mazzani forward. And then at an angle on the side she can't defend. Watch. Here come the hips. She's sitting them in. Pops the hips in. See that? She's going to lift and she's going to drive Mazzani towards her posting hand forward. Right? There you go, Mazzani putting out the posting hand. As she comes down on it, now it's almost like she's scooping this angle. She's driving at that angle. Right? So she wants her weight down and forward. So then she can attack the weak leg of the triangle here. She's got two legs of the triangle, this and this. But there's no leg of the triangle hosting it up. So she's going to put the weight down and then at an angle. I mean, this is just really nice wrestling. There she goes, driving it down. And this is the problem. Pay attention to this arm. You know, This is the one that's ultimately going to get caught. Here is where she should have kept it. She should have kept this tight to her ribs so she could have circled in and gotten an underhook when she got taken down. But this is the magic of what McMahon does. McMahon forces you to post. Boom. So now your arm is away from your body. Then she drives you down. But you had a chance here. You were not dead to rights here. You could have circled the arm in, kept it close to your ribs, protected your face a little bit maybe, you know, right? And instead, she kind of tries to reach around. It looked like she, what she wanted to do was come around and maybe grab an overhook here or something. It's hard to tell exactly what she wanted. But McMahon's literally already on top. I mean, look at McMahon. I mean, it's just insane. By the way, live toes. Uh, BJJ Scouter pointed out this was a problem from her before. Maybe she has rectified it. In fact, we'll look about that a little more at that in just a second. But so she tries to come around. McMahon says, nope, catches it. Catches that joker quick. And here comes the cross face right on top. Now, it's not there yet. This is not it. She's posting here. She's almost got mount. Hasn't quite got quite got past the hips. Hasn't quite settled into the position. But this is all bad. She should be really fighting this. This hand, you can see there's daylight here. This hand should be between this and her face. Never let... I, I, white belt's always like, how do I get out of side control? And there's a lot of ways you can get out of side control. But one of the first things you have to keep in mind is... Uh, and I realize this is not side control. This is mount. But it's the same kind of principle... Like, you don't want them cross-facing your head. Because if they can control your hips and they can control your neck and head, 
it's not magic. You're not getting out. You're not getting out. So uh, watch this. Now it's getting worse, right? And you can see she's kind of pushing off into the fence. I think this part is legal. But she, you see her hips are still high in the air. Mazzani's still trying to like rotate her body over, but she's not doing the right things fighting this on the inside at all. Um, she's not pulling down on the shoulder to give herself space. She's not trying to dig the hand underneath. Nothing, right? And McMahon keeps going. Now she's kind of leaning her weight over. Crossface is getting tighter, but she hasn't really tried to sink it yet. She's still pushing off, trying to like get past this position. All right, now she drops her weight down. Before she had her weight up, you can see that. She drops her weight down to more securely take the position. When she does this, this is natural. Look at her spine. It's this way. She's going to naturally want to move it that way. Right? The spine is not quite in total alignment with where it should be. By the way, look at these toes. I don't know if they're in the fence. I can't really tell from this angle, but something to keep it, pay attention to. Now you can see her sort of straightening her posture. Now look at this. Now it's getting a little bit tighter here. And we'll look at some of these fundamentals in just a second. Now, Mizani, this is too late. Mizani now wants to keep her arm straight so she can, you know, get it underneath the head of um, McMahon. But it's too late at this point. You can't wait until someone has mount on you to do this. I mean, unless they're not very good. But generally speaking, this is way, way, way too late. Okay? So now she's coming up, and it looks like she wants to do the thing where you answer the phone. You can still get finished doing that. It only buys you a little bit of time. And now McMahon is getting the hands clasped together. The hand that goes underneath, that's cross-facing, palm down. That is correct. She puts the other one here. She's going to flare this elbow out, actually, and then bring her weight on top of her hands. Right? See that? She kind of flares that elbow out. It's hard to tell here exactly. It looks like she just brings the elbow out. But if you notice, watch where her head position goes to. It comes up a little bit. You see that? Now, before she's sort of looking kind of straight down, before she was looking down and back, see, she's just straightening her body into position, squeezing her hips back. And what she's going to do is she's going to sag her weight off to the side like that, bringing her shoulders real close to the mat. You see that? She's sagging her hips this way. Again, I can't quite tell what that foot is doing in that fence, whether or not it's in the toes are in there. But you get the idea. Now this joker is super, super, super tight. I mean, look at that. That is super tight. But here's the interesting part about this. This is why the squeeze to me is so amazing. Um, again, if you get a tap from somebody, it's you know, we're not criticizing pro fighters form here. I mean, I'm sure this squeeze would finish me. It finish you, right? I mean, that's the kind of squeeze we're talking about here. But I'm just saying, this is a position. Uh, capturing someone's head and arm is not necessarily all that difficult, especially in MMA. If you can get to mount, you can do punches, and people put their hands up, and then you can just kind of snatch it from there. That's not how she got it here, but you get the idea. But typically the way it was taught years ago was you wanted to be in side control and you wanted to walk this way to sort of like, like you know, like you're closing the bottle on a uh, bottle cap on a soda. You just wanted to crank that angle. And that certainly will help, believe me. But you can be, you can be if you're not in the right position with other things, you can be, um, you can be like all the way perpendicular and you won't finish them. And here's the other interesting part about this. You typically want this elbow touching the ground. But it's not. Why? Well, because she's sagging her weight off to the side a little bit. Because I think she wants to get this shoulder and the chest as flat to the mat as possible. You know, just kind of round the corner into this to the extent that she can. And so it brings her elbow off the ground. But she so got her dead to rights. Look at that. The front delt, hell, even the side delt, is scooping the chin into her face. Look at that. That is a really, really deep scoop. So you can get away with stuff like this where, you know, it's not fully technical. 
um, you know, quote unquote, I have air quotes here, the right way or like, you know, the textbook way because she's bringing the neck completely with her. It almost doesn't even matter. But this is the interesting part about this. And I'm going to put the video in the description box below. A buddy of mine is a black belt under Ryan Hall. He has his own school. It's called um, uh, Upstream BJJ in Richmond, Virginia. His name is Seth Smith. Really great teacher. Maybe one of the better teachers I've ever had in jiu-jitsu. Can't say enough good things about him. He has a video, and I remember he showed me this years ago. We were talking about the Lesnar-Carwin uh, arm triangle. He has a really nasty arm triangle, and the reason why is, and, and he can even do it one-handed. You don't want to do it one-handed, but you can. because, And this is what makes this so remarkable. The big lesson for the arm triangle, and I, we talked about this in the Dars or the Bravo choke, whatever it was, with James Vick. What ultimately allowed James Vick to put Abel Trujillo away, it was that he was able to get some chest pressure and get his hips back behind the tricep of Abel Trujillo. One of the reasons why this can work is you don't necessarily, I mean, you want to be crossbody with him, but you don't have to get all the way over here, and even if she wanted to, she couldn't because of the fence. But the point being is you usually bring, with the, the big revelation to me, and, and this video will show you with Seth Smith, you can bring your chest on top of their arm almost, or to the side, and that chest pressure really closes the show. If someone's really good at it, they can do it one-handed. That's not a joke. You can I've seen it with good guys. You can get a one-handed... Um, head and arm triangle if you bring your chest pressure to bear. Elbow is not down. There is zero chest pressure here. This is just all this triangle of death that she's putting on. Sarah McMahon must have an outrageous squeeze. Yes, she put herself in a nicely scooped position here. No doubt about it. Her head is nice and tight here, ear to ear. This arm has nowhere to go. She's trying to get her shoulders and chest as much you know, scooped into this as possible, so not merely underneath here with the delt. I mean, this is a, this is a nasty triangle, but you know, just think about it like a rear naked choke with no hooks. Is it going to work every time? No, because people have different uh, options about what they can do. In this particular case, um, you know, a lot of times you can stop it if you catch him in half guard, much less mount. Right? Look at this. She is like, this is like, I mean, she's, look at her hips. They're, she's leaning on a hip, basically. And look at the face here, the outrageous discomfort of Gina Mazzani. I mean, look at her, look at her. I mean, she can't take this. And I didn't even notice this the first time. Now, this is the foot of Sarah McMahon. I don't know if the toes are in there or not. Looks like it doesn't really matter, to be honest. But I didn't notice this before. The feet of Mazzani start flailing. Look at that. She actually starts flailing her feet. Because she wants it off and referee Yamasaki saves her. Here's my point. Good people are hard to finish because they know all the tricks about how to breathe and how to, how to stay calm. And you want to be off to the side and you want to bring chest pressure to bear on the back of them. Back of that tricep if you can. Head almost comes up off the mat um, in an ideal scenario. And again, I'll put that video in the description box with Seth Smith below. But she doesn't do any of that. She just has this thing so tightly sunk in. And she has a squeeze that is so vicious, she didn't even need to use some of the things that you have to do to finish people at this level. She just gave her that, I mean, that kung fu grip. Whoa. Sarah McMahon is strong. Okay, and last but certainly not least, let's take a look at what's coming up in the week ahead. There is no UFC event, so we won't have another UFC event until UFC 209 in Las Vegas. I will be there. If you see me, come say hi. Uh, there is, in fact, though, a Bellator event. Bellator 173. This was supposed to be McGeary versus Liam McGeary versus Chris Fields. Um, that got canceled like 
as I was recording this podcast. So now it's going to be Liam McGeary versus Vladimir Filipovich. This will be at the SSE Arena in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, this will be on Friday, February 24th. I don't know when it's going to air on Spike TV. I assume after the fact. So in the main event, McGeary fighting uh, Vladimir Filipovich. Then you're going to have James Gallagher, who's sort of like the Bellator Conor McGregor in a way, uh, versus Kirill Medvedovsky. And then a women's catchweight fight at 140 pounds of Sinead Kavanaugh versus Ioni Raza Fiarison. Uh, this is going to be co-promoted with Bellator, excuse me, with Bama 28. Sort of like the two cards together, and the main card of that Bama 28 card uh, is going to be uh, Riz McKee, Rise McKee versus Chris Stringer, Ronnie Mann versus Damian Lapalus, Andy Young versus Dominic Wooding, and then Norman Park taking on Paul Redman. A lot of UFC vets on that. By the way, Jonathan Brookins also on the prelim card. For that, So that'll be on Friday. I'm not sure how much of that will air on Spike or be on Spike.com after the fact. Um, real quick note, people were asking, what did you think about Todd Grisham uh, in his UFC debut commentating? I thought it was better early and kind of got a little bit off the rails later. He was saying things like, um, oh, Travis, get out of there, you know, where he was sort of like part of the plot of the fight. Didn't care for that so much. Um... um and you know, it was the Tanya Harding joke, I didn't mind so much. But there was a couple of other things a little bit where Brian Stan was like, what are you doing? So, um, f- look, commentating is super difficult and uh, much easier. They, these guys make it look easier than it is. So I would give it, you know, a B. Uh, I think it was better early and kind of faded over time. But, you know, it's a seven-hour broadcast. First time doing a UFC event, still getting the ropes, still trying to build chemistry with other guys. So uh, definitely a solid first effort. I generally thought the the act of play-by-play by him was good. Just some of the theatrics and the personality. You want to see it, but could be toned down just a little bit, edited a little bit. Um, and maybe that will come with time. I guess we'll have to see. So definitely not a bad first effort by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else from that over time. Nope, I think that's basically about it. If you want to email me, please do so. Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. You may also, uh, please, I would encourage you, it would be great if you could give it a thumbs up, share it around. That's always good for me as well and uh, good for MMA fighting. And um, yeah, so if I see you out at UFC 209, give me a shout. And until then, thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Take care and, of course, enjoy the fights.